Hello and welcome back to TRSI, the right side here with uh, Michael Dwyer and today we are interviewing David Mullins and we're going to be talking about the euthanasia bill and the dying with dignity. We might even talk about the fact that you can cover shit in chocolate but you, should, you still shouldn't eat it uh, So uh, because people get very annoyed uh, when you try and change the title of these bills. Uh, so David, we're delighted to have you here. So, uh, just can you tell our viewers out there, our listener, <laughs> I like to call it, a little bit about yourself. Your your background is in bioethics, is that right? That's right, Michael. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks very much for the offer. Um, yeah, I'm, I have a background in bioethics. I did um, postgraduate work in uh, in bioethics in St. Patrick's in Maynooth. And uh, what I did there at that time was just I focused on the ethical and theological implications of embryonic stem cell research. And what were the ethical, possible ethical alternatives to that? And uh, that was a good few years ago, and there was plenty of promise and hype around that as well, around the ending of suffering. And unfortunately, very little of that has materialised. And I think there's certainly correlations going to be here with this bill. But of course, the interesting thing about the embryonic was it was going to solve everything. It was going to be it was the great panacea. Yeah. And if it wasn't just for cavemen and troglodytes mm. and Catholics around the place yeah. stopping this happening. And yet, yeah. while there have been many very important breakthroughs, they've all pretty well happened with, uh, uh, let's get the word right, pluripotent stem cells. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. pluripotent, yeah, as opposed to embryonic. Embryonic stem cells really can form into any cell in the body. Pluripotent have kind of multi, kind of multi potentialities, like really, but some, not every cell. But yeah, I mean, I, I think at the time, like when the huge hype was around that, especially when the debates were going on in America, somebody, one of the American senators had a great line. He said that we kind of, we want to, uh, we have this view that embryonic stem, cell reacher, embryonic stem cell research is going to be the royal road to medical progress. And that's why we need to keep it going, you know. And unfortunately, like it didn't just, it just kind of morphed over the years into kind of a donkey track, you know, really. And uh, a lot of the benefits have been in, adult stem cell research and uh, you know um, so that's where a lot of the, the health benefits a lot of the health outcomes have come um, um, so it's uh, yeah one of those areas again like a lot of medicine is prone to this that was huge hype huge commercialization and very little positive outcomes for the patients uh, but people get caught up in it you know which is very unfortunate and, 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 and that's not that's understandable it's not surprising people want people want to hear that uh, there's going to be a cure for every disease, and unfortunately, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, I open the paper every day in that hope that I'm going to find the article telling me, Yes, you are going to live forever, and you can eat what you like, and drink what you like, and do what you like. We have it sorted, and there's going to be a magic pill that will bring you back to when you're around 28 to 30 and, you're, and your belly will disappear and you'll be able to run a marathon and it'll be fabulous and your tennis game will improve but yet, you know, yeah. they can put a man on the moon but they can't do that Yeah, exactly yeah, I, I, It really brings us down to earth I mean, all the kind of, all, for all our enlightenment and rationality and everything else, we can still be drawn in by the Ab for 2000 commercials, you know yeah. and <laughs> If we only sacrifice the right God, we'd be able to get it. We just have to find the right God. <laughs> right sacrifice. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the cult you, of youth is uh, thriving. So you're working, you, 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 uh, you're, uh, you spend quite a bit of time up around that August uh, institution on Kildare Street, I believe. So, yeah, yeah. Up there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm working there basically for the last uh, more or less uh, eight, nine years really as a kind of a researcher for some of the independent TPs mm -hmm. and uh, policy development and research there. So it's um, it's been an interesting experience and, uh, you know, it's um, a difficult place to work at times if you have anything like a remotely conservative viewpoint or, right. or a remotely um, conservative ethical stance on issues that, you know, very difficult time. But also it's a, it's a great opportunity just to be there to kind of the heart of the debates and the policies and try and uh, do what you can to kind of shape some of the responses. And uh, that's really what I'm about. Some cynics would say that it's a difficult place to be if you have a viewpoint or an ethic. <laughs> I wouldn't be one of those. Um, those, cynics, those cynics will be right. We're talking about a rather more serious subject today. Well, it's always serious. Um, Gino Kelly, Gino Kenny, I, keep, I have this, yeah, has introduced a bill, the title of which is that I think the Dying with Dignity. Is it? Yeah, Dignity and Dying Bill 2020. Dignity, yeah. Now this this has been coming for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, this has been yeah, the genesis of this bill really was in 2015 when um former Minister of State John Halligan, the Warford TD, um independent, well he was part of Shane Ross's group. Um so he uh brought forward a bill in, in two thousand sorry, 2015, basically dealing with assisted assisted dying as he calls it, assisted suicide. Um, it didn't get a lot of support, um, but it went to the Justice Committee for deliberations there, and they formed, they brought in, um, they brought in different uh, advocates and opponents to it. Um, but the committee couldn't arrive at a consensus, so the committee produced a report, and uh, they said that they, they can't, we can't, we simply cannot arrive at a, a consensus on this issue. And then, of course, when the when the election came, 2016, the Dáil, uh, when the election came, the, any bill that's before the Dáil lapses. So uh, Gino Kenny took up the bill, uh, renewed it, changed it, um, uh, added new provisions to it, and brought it again before the doll, maybe around four, four or five weeks ago now at this stage, introduced it. Um, and then it went to a, a, what they call a second stage debate uh, two weeks ago. Uh, no, second stage debate. And uh, that was an extraordinary experience in its own right. I mean, it was as... Uh, Maybe the listeners know there's only 75 minutes aside for that debate. Uh, only one speaker who opposed the bill got to, got to talk about it, and that was uh, Deputy Peter Fitzpatrick. Even though there were others in the chamber, Deputy Patrick Fobine and Matthew McGrath, Carol Nolan, and others who wanted to speak but they weren't able to speak. And um, basically, the 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 supporters and the government basically talked down the clock, and uh, the the time ran out. And as I said, only four minutes were given to it. And, but the government had said that they didn't have any principled objection to the bill, so they put forward an amendment. With, and the amendment, the aim of the amendment was that, look, given the complexity of the issue, the legal, the ethical, the constitutional, the political, and everything else, um, we're going to have to park. I mean, what we want to do is we want to park this issue for 12 months, get ourselves together, get some, get some uh, um, supporters, some opponents, some advocates, some sectoral workers in, get them in before a giant rock to special committee, which deals with specific issues. And uh, we'll have a good old debate about this, and then uh, we'll be able to deal with this in the ground in a more complete way. So that went for a vote in the Dáil the following week, and uh, the government amendment was defeated, and uh, Deputy Junior Kenny's bill got through. Um, now, it was a great surprise, I think, to many people um, that the, the government amendment was defeated. In my own sense, like, that was a serious tactical mistake, huge tactical mistake, that the, the opportunity should have been grasped to support the government amendment, 
I mean, it, because what we were really in there was a kind of worst case, I know, the least worst option kind yeah. of scenario. And uh, so I think that the opportunity definitely should have been taken to support the government amendment, give us 12 months breathing space, not give the uh, supporters of suicide and euthanasia the momentum that this bill and that, that that vote. And I think that's what's going to be very worrying here, like that essentially there's the, the view has gone out now already that the door has overwhelmed, you know, over, for overwhelmingly endorsed the, the principle of assisted suicide. You yeah. know, and essentially, I mean, and that's true and it's not true at the same time, I suppose. Um, so I think it was a, tact it was a tactical mistake. I want, to I, want, I want to come back to that, but before I want to rewind a little bit to the, you see, it goes to second stage debate and there was 75 minutes debate mm -hmm. allotted to this issue. Yes, yeah. 75, I mean, it seems to me that I, and I may be, it may be just an impression, but some fairly serious legislation, social legislation particularly, has gone through the Dáil with incredibly little discussion or debate. This is literally a life and death issue. Yeah. And you had 75, a 75 minute debate on an issue of incredible complexity, difficulty, nuance. Mm. I think there was the, the one speaker that did manage to speak only did so because I think, to be fair, Deputy Kenny conceded him time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Deputy Kenny gave him uh, four minutes at the end. So, and that was right at the very end of the debate. I mean, there was a kind of an extraordinary lack of generosity, really, on the parts of the other deputies. That's the only way, I mean, because there was an awareness that there were people in the chamber who wanted to speak on this issue, like, and in all, you know, in natural fairness, natural justice sense, like, the, the, say, for example, the Sinn Féin speaker took 10, the first Sinn Féin speaker took 10 minutes, the second one took another 10 minutes, but he shared his with Deputy Roisin Shortwell, and uh, who was also supporting the bill mm -hmm. and opposing the amendment, and um, so um, so even where there were even those who were willing to you know willing to share time, they were only willing to do so uh, initially at least with the deputies who were going to support their view and just essentially repeat the same the same speaking points <coughs> in support of the in support of the bill. So there was a remarkable kind of lack of generosity, and and in fairness, the chair um, Bernard Durkin, who was in the chair at the time, he did appeal on a number of occasions for. To deputies to share their time with other members and to mm -hmm. give those who opposed the bill an opportunity to speak, but nobody took nobody took that up. Basically, they just said, "No, we're, we're going to take all our time, and uh, that's it." It, it I, it's a different, it, obviously, a much different issue, but it, it slightly reminds me of the the process that happened around the gender the the gender recognition bill, which just mm. sailed through. Donald Shannon, incredibly little debate and very little reporting in the press about it. And it just ends up on, on the bill. And I still, to this day, I, I, I believe most people in the country are unaware what the law is. I think yeah, yeah. the activism yeah, Barbie Kardashian may be about to inform <laughs> them a little bit better about what the, the, the law in Ireland actually is. But it just yeah. strikes me, this is our parliament. This is the the great mm. chamber of debate where these issues are supposed to be thrashed out. And we, I grew up watching BBC when the East Coast, we used to get the English channels. And you, you saw the kind of debates that happened in Westminster. And we saw recently in Westminster when this subject was, was there, the level of debate and, the, and the, the time that was involved. This just seems to me to be almost embarrassing. It's, yeah. I can't explain otherwise than to believe that everybody has decided 
they don't need to listen to other opinions. Yeah, it, it is. You're right. I mean, it, it is a real, real problem. I think in a, in our in a, for not just for a parliament, but but actually for democracy generally, like that. Our our, our politicians, our parliamentarians, they take up quite for all their opposition to so-called populism and pop, populist leaders in various parts of the world. They essentially adopt very very populist views, very little very little analysis, and uh, and there's very little pushback against the extreme proposals. That that come before the door, in especially in terms of the issues such as that, like the Gender Recognition Act. I mean, I remember that debate in 2015, and being very surprised at the language of people who we thought would have offered a more reasoned critique of it. So, you know, Willie O'Dea was saying, "Always oh, be, be extremely paternalistic of us to not allow this to go through. That we can't, we simply cannot allow uh, these, these bills like this to be um, obstructed. You know, because that would be very, as I say, paternalistic. You know, and." Um, and people who you would just you would expect more from in a sense, and maybe that's a, a blind spot. But um, but it, but uh, but it does happen. It happens on a regular basis, unfortunately. And um, we don't have anything like the depth of debate that you have, say, for example, in the UK and even the US. For all uh, the the criticism people make of it at, con at congressional level, congressional hearings, you know, there's a serious level of debate there as well. But here. It just does. It just does not happen. Uh, people coalesce around a certain progressive, for want of a better word, viewpoint, and that sticks. And, and there's no getting away from it. You know? So, the government had proposed this amendment, just saying yeah. we don't have a problem in principle with the with, with the bill, but we want we're going to propose that we have, I don't maybe a special committee set up. To yeah. deal with this. What effect if the amendment had been passed? What, what effect would that have had on the process and the timeline? Well, the, the, the immediate effect was that the issue would have been um, essentially stalled for 12 months at a minimum. The issue would have been stalled for 12 right. months. And in the, in, uh, during that 12 months, the government commitment was that it would engage in bringing together people from, say, palliative care, from hospice care, but also from uh, patient advocates, um, mm. ethicists, uh, legal, legal opinion, uh, maybe some international experience, and they will be able to get those people together uh, 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 so that so that at uh, 12 months or later, any point then, uh, they would convene a special practice committee to deal specifically just with this issue of uh, with of assisted uh, assisted suicide, assisted dying, and um, so that's that. That would have been the most immediate outcome. But I think sorry, um, I from, quick, sorry, just to cut across you there. Sorry. If in this, in the, in this would a year before that would have happened. If yes. over the next year the government mm -hmm. fell, yes, then the would that would mean that the, the bill would fall? Oh, absolutely. All bills lapse. Any bill that's not enacted or that's before the door at first, at second stage, or committee stage, or report stage, if it, if there's an election called and the doll is dissolved, then all yes. bills that are before the door lapse. And that was one of the reasons. <coughs> excuse me. Why? Say, for example, the last election, there's a lot of consideration on that. We have to, we cannot collapse the door because we have to bring forward this bill, that bill. This is so important. The judicial reform bill, for example, we, you know, that lapsed. Um, uh, despite all the work, the months on that, mm -hmm. Shane Hossel's uh, um, baby there, the, uh, the judicial reform bill. But that, that fell, and other bills, all bills fall when the door is dissolved, and they have to be uh, uh, brought back onto the door order paper. They have to be, you know, Reinitiated in a sense, like uh, before the dawn. So again, that would have been that would have been another delay, a welcome delay. Yeah. Um, because it would have occasioned, you know, space for more 
um, more more debate, more critique of what was actually being proposed. And as I said, one of the one of the greatest, the the, the most obvious danger um, uh, that became apparent during the course of the debate in the, in the Dáil uh, at second stage was just how very little the proposer understood about the nature of his own bill, but also the responses from the other deputies. They clearly were just not informed about the potential out the potential uh, pitfalls of introducing right. legislation of this kind. They just they, they seem to be completely unaware, and they went on this very simplistic narrative that this was essentially a, a, a piece of legislation motivated by compassion, mm-hmm. and there can be no argument against it. Now, I, I want to talk to you to get a, a, a bit of elucidation about the actual bill itself in, in, in a minute, but mm. I, I have to say, when, when I saw the results on Twitter or whatever, and the, the, the numbers, I was kind of puzzled because the amendment was defeated by a larger margin than the bill was. And it, if I counted right, there were four, in, there were four Fianna Fáil TDs, for example, who ended up voting for the bill, but there were 14 mm-hmm. who opposed the amendment. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of people who opposed the bill, but also opposed the amendment. And mm-hmm. what was the, what was the, um, I speak. I mean, frankly, myself and Gary uh, adverted to this fact uh, on the podcast. Were puzzled by it, and maybe, well, frankly, a little bit critical. More than perhaps a little bit that. What was the thinking? What behind? Not, not. I mean, it must have been clear, surely, that mm. this, this, well, the, that the bill was going to pass at this stage, yeah, yeah. if the amendment didn't come in. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, you're, you weren't the only one that was confused. And even, you know, there was a huge amount of anger, I think, among people with pro-life uh, views about, about the failure of the amendments to pass. But I think what the motivation was, and, and we really, ask, I mean, I, I am seriously critical of the fact that the amendment didn't pass. And, and I think, as I said, I think it was a huge tactical mistake um, for, that that happened. But I think, at the same time, I can recognize that those uh, who voted against the amendment did so in the belief like that this was the best, the best course of action, you know, and that they, they had their own tactical thing. So what I think tactically, what I think their tactical motivation was that, look, if we, if we vote against the amendment and the amendment fails, then that will induce such panic in those on the government side who may have been willing to support the bill. They'll say, the bill is such a piece of rubbish. We cannot allow this bill to go through. The bill is so full of holes and that a certain amount of panic would have kicked in and that then the bill itself would have been, uh, would have been sufficient numbers would have reacted in that way to vote against the bill because, uh, as I say, a certain amount of kind of panic would have kicked in and we can't have the government defeated twice, essentially. Uh, so the yeah. amendment fails, government defeated. The bill, the bill goes through, that's a government defeat as well, essentially. So I think there was a kind of, there might have been a calculation along those levels uh, or along those lines that, uh, as I say, Look, if the amendment goes down, people are going to say, "Good, good God, like, we can't let this piece of as I said, as I said, piece of rubbish get through." And uh, but that didn't happen. That was, was a high risk, risk tactical. Yeah, high risk, high risk, high, high risk strategy. But I think it would have been far better to go with a kind of pragmatic principle, pragmatic principleism there than like than this kind of a you know, um, oh, I don't know. It's again, it's, it's hard not to be unfair in a sense. Like, it, but uh, as it could because as I say, I do think the people who voted against it were motivated by. The best of intentions, like you know, but as they say, it's just, it just didn't. It didn't work. It was a high stakes gamble. It didn't work, and we are where we are now. We're twelve months closer, essentially. To uh, well, we're, we're we're definitely 
um, six to seven months closer to uh, to to this bill becoming law than where we were before okay. the vote happened. So now what, what is the process? I mean, I have people saying to me, oh, well, it's over now. It'll go to committee in no. three weeks' time. It'll come out of committee in no time. It'll go and no. be voted on again. It'll go to the price. Mm. That just so, seems to me a bit unlikely. No, that, that's but, not what, 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 no, not, Yeah, well, the process actually is now, okay? So the, the yesterday on, yes, on, the, on the Dáil order paper, which establishes the business for the day in the Dáil, the motion was made for... Uh, that the dignity and angle would go to committee, so it's going to go to pre-legislative uh, pre-legislative scrutiny uh, in the justice committee. I think at this stage, and um, so what that is simply what that involves is, is basically a kind of miniature version of a special eruptus committee, in a sense where mm-hmm. the um, supporters and opponents of the bill are going to be brought in to discuss the issue and to say what are the possible uh, legislative implications, ethical implications, legal implications for introducing this bill. Let's have a discussion about the pros and cons of it. Um, now, so the, the committee will engage in that level of scrutiny, and then after that process is concluded, the committee uh, writes a report, and the committee will either recommend or not recommend that the bill proceed to actual committee stage. So there's pre-committee stage okay. and committee stage. So where, where, where we are now is we're in the pre-legislative scrutiny committee stage. So that when, the, when that happens, and a date hasn't been set for that, but when that happens, uh, as I say, that will take place, and after that happens, after that process finishes, a report will be made, and uh, it will either recommend that the bill go forward to committee stage, or or it'll say no. There's too many problems with this issue. We're not going to recommend that it goes forward. So, but that's that's not the end of the process because even if the committee recommends that the bill doesn't go forward to committee stage, it still has to go to the doll, and Gino can call, Gino Kenny can call a vote at that stage. To essentially override the committee, to send the to send the send the issue back at, to committee level because the doll has precedence over the committee. Sure. So that's where we are. But it's how likely is it that the the, the pre committee would would not recommend it go to committee? I mean, just... well, I think that will depend. That will that will largely depend on the effectiveness of the, of of uh, or how persuasive, in a sense. Um, the, um, the the presentations are during the committee. If the committee, if the pre-legislative scrutiny committee process is fair, now there's again we've seen on other issues the Oireachtas Joint Committee on the Eighth Amendment how extraordinarily imbalanced. I mean, a, a absolute you know uh, just a ridiculous charade of a committee. What that uh, that that was, and you have people like you know Senator Ronan Mullen and um, Deputy Matty McGrath, Peter Fitzpatrick, and others, uh, the, the the two key Ray brothers and. Um, Power to being essentially the only ones in there. I mean, and uh, the, the whole process was just um, uh, skewed from beginning to end. Um, so I think if the process is fair, but if this 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 process is like this this issue is slightly different, you know, people are aware that there is maybe uh, there's a you know there's a there's a need for a small degree of caution at least around this. Whereas before, with the Eighth Amendment, one was seemed to be a lot of more cultural impetus to get that done. Who will for who would, the who what will the membership be of the of the the pre committee? Is it the same as the the justice committee, or is it a small subset? No, no, it's it's the the, the, the just the, well essentially yeah essentially it'd be the same membership as the justice committee essentially. So they'll uh, be they will get presentations. Yeah, and then they'll be able how to hear. How long will that process be? Um, well, normally that process would could go on for anything up to three months, three to four months. Okay. So, uh, but I think um, 
the the Oireachtas committees have already established, most of them already established their what they call their work plan for right. the year. So they already have a list of a job of work to do. This, we need to get through this issue, this issue, this issue. And I don't think at this stage that the um, the dignity and dying bill has been set on to be uh, to, set on to the work plan. Like, but how how quickly it goes there, I don't know. There's no clear sense about when that will happen. Um, Gino Kenny was out on the Plinth and Leinster House with Deputy Richard Boy Bard uh, maybe last week, saying that he hoped that it would go to committee within the next uh, three to six weeks. I think that's ambitious, you know, but it could it could happen. Um, but even if it does. You still have um, between now and Christmas, you know, and the door recess and everything else. You're talking into the new year at this stage before the pre-legislative scrutiny process is over. And then, as I say, then they have to draw up that report. And the report has to, to recommend or not recommend, and then that has to go to the door. So there is a bit of breathing space there, um, but so much of it is, uh, will depend on the, um, the, the presentations that come before the committee, who comes before the committee and how willing the members are to listen. As regards the the time that will be made available or the speed with which it goes to pre-committee, does the fact mm. that the government have, have opposed the bill, uh, would, mm. are, will they be in a position to make it more difficult or will, if they wanted to to, to, to slow this process down? Mm. Well, I think I think they are, they are going to be caught in a bind in the sense like that the, the, the government members uh, they say the government adopted the position that the the process the, the process was so complex and so sensitive that it required extensive consultation. So I don't think there's going to be any rush among the government members of the pre-legislative scrutiny process to um, to to um, to speed up the process. I don't think they I don't think they will do that. In fairness to them, I don't think they will. Um, I think that the issue will probably receive you know a far greater degree of scrutiny. Um, uh, a kind of a, a decent level of scrutiny, really. But as I say, a lot of it will depend on. See, so much of this depends on. There's the secretariat and the clerk of the committee, and these organise the present. This, these are the people who organise uh, the the um, what policy kind of information is given to the members of the committee on these issues, and say the invite inviting of guests and all of that. And um, I think that was a huge problem in terms of, that emerged as a huge problem in the Joint Directors Committee on the Eighth Amendment that there was uh, people were. People are never normally critical. It's kind of one of those taboo things. You don't criticize the clerk. You don't criticize the civil servants or the yeah. secretary behind the committee who do the kind of uh, the mechanical work, if you like, around the committees and um, the logistics and that. But but I think it did emerge as a problem because there were several requests to the Joint Directors Committee in the 8th for certain guests to come in. And there was a slowness in the process, a slowness in response um, to getting back to people. So I, I hope you don't see that here. There's, there's, there is a possibility, of course, but I think um, I think really that uh, um, that at this stage, given the volume of of resistance to it, given the nature of the resistance to it among palliative care doctors, that there's just it's un, it's an undeniable fact that the overwhelming majority of palliative care doctors in this country oppose the bill, and the palliative care doctors associations have made that clear. And that's that's going to be something that the government members and the members of any committee who deal with this will not be able to avoid. In the same way that they were able to avoid uh, the pro-life views of GPs, for example, uh, during the, uh, I think the, the Royal College of Physicians, I think the Royal College of yeah, Physicians Royal, has taken a position. Yeah. yeah, the Royal College of Physicians has opposed the introduction of assisted suicide in euthanasia, and uh, so the Irish Palliative Care Doctor Association as well. And um, so, 
there's that, uh, there's a strong level of institutional and professional resistance among palliative care doctors to this bill. They see it, they know it, what they know, they know the outcomes that are going to happen. Now, however, whatever um, uh, safeguards are uh, alleged, are you know, are purport to be put into the bill, that essentially these things are little more than fictions. You know, they're um, you can't talk about safeguards. And again, the example there just reminds me about the gender recognition bill you mentioned a few minutes ago. I mean. A lot of the, the so-called protections around this, for parents, we say, that parents' consent will always be required, you know, parents' consent. And then, of course, you have the experience everywhere where if a parent does voice their opposition, say, to a child um, um, transitioning to, from one gender to another, if you want to use that language, um, the parents are transphobic. The parents are stigmatized. So the, effectively, the, the parents are kind of, you know, you, 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 Theoretically, you have an option to object, but really, the protections that uh, the, say around parental consent don't amount to a hint of beans. What happened, and also what happens is you set up these protections for one context, and then you just change the context. So, for example, like uh, you say, oh well, it'll have to be done under the care and the direction of physicians and qualified personnel, and then you then uh, a year later you, you you have a situation where the American yeah, the American Psychiatric Association changed their rules and say that if you are a therapist and you cannot just affirm the gender choice mm -hmm. of your client, then you shouldn't be that person's therapist. Yes. Yeah. So at that point, yeah. you, you've made the rule. Well, of course, it has to be done under the care of a therapist, but the rule, mm -hmm. is, but the therapist has to agree. So. Mm -hmm. Mm. There is effectively yeah, no. it's, it's, it's a nonsense because I mean, always they, they, what they want is they, they want the perception to go out that we're being very cautious, we're being very prudent, we're being very careful, we're not ambitious for these things. We don't want abortion, we don't want, uh, 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 say, um, uh, assisted, uh, assisted suicide, we don't want these things. We're going to put in place all of these precautions because we're very cautious and responsible people. And then you find, as you said, over the course of time, that almost immediately, salami chopping begins yeah. for the protections you know that they that they just that's that's what happens uh, you know without fail <laughs> without I mean, fail I, I it there is there's a very black comedy to what's been happening in the last couple of weeks but under the recognition when the gender recognition thing was being discussed and people were putting forward certain kinds of concerns and outlining certain scenarios it was this nonsense if this could never happen this is the bizarre paranoid fantasies of right-wingers and conservatives. Uh, this is just pure nonsense. And then we have um, Barbie Kardashian comes along, who is everything packed into one neat little package of everything that everybody said could happen. And yes, has yeah. And yes, yeah, I mean, and it's, 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 it's far just, bigger news outside Ireland, by the way, than it is in Ireland. It's a huge, yeah. well, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? I mean, well, that's like, you know, our, our own, um, well, there's a certain kind of spinelessness around the reporting of these things that goes on. But um, I think the, uh, yeah, there, there you have a perfect example of this is just the logical outcome of the legislation. And I think what people need to do as well, I mean, it's, I'm always, my, my, my wife is worn out from hearing me say this, like, but I'm saying people don't pay attention to the details, you know? True. And uh, so you need to, you know, and it's the same with these, this, this bill. People, that's always the danger. And it's always the danger that there's this kind of, um, uh, and again, you know, not everybody is interested at that, this level. People have lives, you know, uh, but, but the legislators don't have that excuse. 
they don't have that excuse. They, they should pay attention to the job. details, you know. That's and, their job. That's their job, you know. They should pay attention to the details. So, okay, just to finish the process, slight uh, story. It goes into pre-committee. We'll imagine that sometime at the end of January, we'll say, a report is mm -hmm. issued, comes out of pre-committee, and they recommend it goes to committee. And yeah. again, what happens, if they've taken expert opinion in pre-committee, what will happen in, in committee? Yeah, so uh, at that stage, if it goes, if it come, if it goes to actual committee, we'll be, deal, we'll be back dealing specifically with the dying, uh, in, with Dignity Bill in 2020. And uh, so, and a lot of the amendments that probably will, probably will be brought forward at that stage will have been informed by the recommendations of the report. Mm -hmm. So the report, will, the report of the pre-legislative scrutiny report will probably have identified the, the, the key weaknesses in the bill. And some of the, some of the TDs, even those who, now in fairness, some of the TDs who, who even supported Deputy King's bill, they've said, look, this bill is not perfect. And do, certain elements of it do need to be changed. Um, so the report will, the, what, the, what the report will do will just basically inform the nature of the amendments that will be made at committee level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, that, that, I think that's what will happen. Um, so one of them, uh, see, the, the, it, they'll have to deal with this problem because the, the supporters of the bill are saying that this is essentially about assisted, assisted dying, assisted suicide, and mm -hmm. we should not conflate this with euthanasia. This is not euthanasia. What we're essentially doing is giving people the option just to, you know, to be assisted when they're dying, that they will be the ones to perform the act. But the bill itself goes completely against that. I mean, the bill is not, the bill is, uh, the, uh, there, there are sections of the bill, section, uh, where is it? It's section 11 of the bill. So section 11 of the bill is, is the part of the bill uh, this, the Dying the Dignity Bill, uh, which deals with the administration of substances. And Section 11 says that, you know, that where a person can orally take substances to end their life, then they should be given them, and then the person themselves should take them. Okay, so that is assisted, assisted, assisted suicide. That is, the, that is a fair understanding. But then, uh, as, as Section 11C of the bill, people want to go to it. They'll see, it's clearly written there, that where the substances cannot be administered, by the person, then the, a physician or a medical professional may administer the substances to the person. And that is practically a, a definition of active euthanasia. Mm -hmm. So there are people who are saying out there, I've seen this in you know, reports, are saying that we should, there's, there's been a deliberate campaign of distortion about this bill. We're not talking about euthanasia, we're talking about assisted dying. And you're thinking, read the bill, read the bill, read, read section 11 see of the bill in particular and see that it says there that the bill makes specific provision that um, uh, substances can be administered to a person by a medical professional to end or to, to, to essentially to kill them to end their life and that is as I say by any, any definition um, active euthanasia. There was an interesting piece of research done recently uh, published uh, I think yesterday that from Oregon, which went through the, the 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 demographics of the people who are using, who are being euthanized in 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 Oregon, and they found that the, the biggest group of people were white at university educated men, ethnic minorities, for example, just didn't appear, Native Americans, African Americans, Hispanics, and one uh, theory is that for white university educated men, personal autonomy is a very very important issue, and. Uh, so on that, I, you're coming from, a, say, from a from a, 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 a Catholic moral position. 
which yes. is sort of the what's the phrase the um, seamless garment mm -hmm. uh, yep. where life which regards life as sacred from conception to natural death and that's fine that's a, a perfectly respectable ethical position to take but mm. we don't make laws mm. in ireland in the republic on the basis of religious belief mm -hmm. we don't endorse the religious beliefs we say we respect them so what do you say to someone who says well you know i own i own myself i have my own personal autonomy i reserve to myself the right to choose the time and the manner of my death mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i don't think that you should this you or the state should get in the way of that right and if other people want to choose that the the natural processes should be followed that that's that's fine that's certain business i'm not stopping mm -hmm. them doing that but i'm simply asserting my my right as an autonomous person in the republic to say listen i want it to be done this way how do you respond to that yeah well i, I think there's a couple of things there the first one is that the the, the Catholic position, if you like, the Catholic ethical position, is not doesn't not does not demand that its own say that its own um, its own ethical views would be kind of imposed on the population, because what it what it does instead is is, is that it says that there are certain um, ethical ethical viewpoints, there are certain um, uh, ethical stances that we can take, which are rationally accessible by anybody mm -hmm. who has the use of their reason. And I think that the, the Catholic moral tradition is, is, is heavily informed by that viewpoint. That we say that, you know, this is our position, but you can arrive at, or you can arrive at, the, uh, at a sense of the justness of our position just by, by rational investigation into it. You know, and that, that, that's what it is. Like, there's a kind of faith and reason element to it, if you like. Um, it, you know, you can have the, um, the, you don't have to be, Catholic, for example, to know that killing the innocent is wrong mm -hmm. at some level. You don't have to. It's, you, Catholics believe that, but they don't believe that necessarily because they're Catholic. They believe it because it's wrong. Uh, so, and, and, that, and that a confirmation of the, of the, um, the, the, uh, the ethical properties, for example, of that that, is a, that that is a good view to have, that that is accessible to people surely by virtue of the fact that they just rationally investigate the position they have to see, use their reason, use their common sense, sure. use their experience as human beings, and we'll be able to, act, act, you know, we'll be able to do that. I, but I, I don't think I, it's certainly not the Catholic position like that uh, that it would seem to mandate its own ethical viewpoints on okay. onto the population. No, okay. It makes it makes arguments informed by reason and proposes them to people. But okay, so I'm not so we accept that. We're not. We're not talking about an, an, an attempt by a, a group to impose its, uh, rather, to engage in in a, in, a, in a rationally based argument. But so let's let's look at that argument then. So mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm not an innocent person. I am a fallen creature, mm -hmm. and I have decided. You know. I have X, Y, and I have Z. The quality of my life is dreadful. I don't see any prospect of, uh, of improvement. I'm also aware that I have become, and this is a problem for me, I am 
uh, an emotional and a practical and an economic burden, maybe on the state, but certainly on my family. And I, that, that, I, I, I'm, I'm tired of that. And I don't have the capacity right now to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I don't know. I don't want to kill myself by taking a hundred pieces of paracetamol because, you know, I'm going to die of liver failure for five days and it's going to be horrible or whatever. So mm -hmm. this legislation is, shall we say, a humane way of addressing my desire as an autonomous person to die. Mm. So I want the state to legislate, to allow me to do that. Why do you mm. think the state should not legislate to allow me to do that? Yeah, because well, I think there's a lot of considerations there. Number one is that we don't exist in isolation from the rest of the community. We don't exist in isolation from the state mm -hmm. and that the state has an interest in pursuing goods like, uh, like uh, common good goods, in a sense, like health, uh, like the protection of life, like the protection of the vulnerable, the protection of the disabled, the sick, and all that. Uh, just to give an example, so I think that the, the autonomy argument is is oh, is is in a sense, it's of course it's understandable. We all have, we all want autonomy. We all have autonomy. We all want to exercise our, our our autonomy in certain ways. But but I think most people at the same time as they accept that would say that um, autonomy cannot be unrestricted, it cannot be a case of unrestricted autonomy. Just mm -hmm. merely by the fact of me wanting something uh, does not mean that I should, I should get it, mm -hmm. in a sense, and that because there are other goods that have to be considered. And I think, again, in terms of the depression, I'm depressed and I have everything else, um, like we, have, we have to situate these arguments really in the, in the, in the, in the context of, say, the, the, the palliative care tradition, the hospice tradition, people who have dealt with these, these situations, people who have dealt with people in those circumstances, and have listened to people say those exact same things or similar things, and their response has always been that, although from your, my, one of my friends has this, has a, this great phrase, he says, how you see the world creates the world you see. You know? And I think it's, there's this kind of sense that how, how we see the world when we're depressed, how we see the world when we're vulnerable, that obviously influences the choices that we want, the, the outcomes that we want. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to, when you're, when you're put into a caring, loving environment, when, you're, when your needs are actually met, uh, when your pain is, can actually be managed, then, it, then you may have very different views. Uh, and there is that thing about, about suicide being a temporary, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of those, uh, it's one of those viewpoints that kind of needs to be remembered as well. So what I think that uh, we do need to situate these, these, these kinds of debates in the broader context of how do, how do we better approach the needs of somebody who's saying something like that? You know, how, how do we respond in a better, in a more caring and an appropriate way? I mean, there's a great phrase, one of the greatest pioneers of palliative care in the UK and Ireland, um, um, Cicely Saunders, Dame Cicely Saunders. She, she described this, uh, she had a great description of palliative care and the approach to, to palliation, the approach to compassionate care is that it was the bridge between love and science. You know, she said this is the bridge between love and science. And I think we've, we need far more of that and far less of um, an, a knee-jerk res response which says, you know, okay, you have asked me for this, therefore you must have it. Uh, without, without critique, without question, but merely by the fact that you're asking for it, you can have it. And that seems to be the viewpoint, that just because somebody asks for something, and in an exercise of their autonomy, that they should be able to get it without consideration to other higher order goods like the good of the community, the good of the family even. Because what the person 
you're talking there about an individual, but that individual could be an individual in a family. The family may be opposed, the spouse may be opposed, the mm -hmm. children may be opposed, that there are other goods to consider. So, you know, that there are other, as I say, there are other goods to consider uh, in those circumstances, and we should not be just having this kind of uh, um, adopt a position where merely by the fact of somebody wants something that they should get it. You know, then we should we should interrogate that a bit more. We should, we should interrogate that a bit more and be more conscious as well that because we have lost that sense of that we exist in community, we exist as social beings, and this radical sense of autonomy blinds us and obscures that viewpoint. You know, it can blind us to that. It can blind us to the extent that we do live in community. You know that uh, you know that there is no such thing as a private law for me. Like the, the law cannot be written for David Mullins mm. or Michael Dwyer. There can be no such thing as a private law. Law exists. Law is for the you know the, the common good, not just for me. I think that that maybe is well, for me. That's more important. A uh, point uh, that, that there can't be a private law, because mm. while I I, I, uh, I I I take your point, but shall we say ideally speaking, we should if somebody is of a mindset to take their life because of these reasons that if we could change their context and therefore change their mind, that would be the ideal mm. solution. I, I think that I would ask you, do you not think that it's also possible to, although maybe within your own ethical framework, you, you wouldn't be comfortable with this, I don't know. Mm. I think this would work both as you took from a, say, say from a root, from a utilitarian consequentialist argument, but also within a, a virtue ethics argument that mm. we have to recognize as well that as you say, law is not private. Mm. And even if I say, you know, we have, we have, we have, we don't criminalize suicide anymore. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, suicide was a crime. And mm -hmm. if you attempted suicide, you could be charged and convicted. I don't know if you, they would hang you, but certainly mm -hmm. it was, it was regarded as something which was uh, taboo legally and morally. However, we can't ignore that it might be the case, or we could argue that it will inevitably be the case, that if I concede to you the right to do this, mm -hmm. this would have consequences for other people. Mm -hmm. I would have outcomes for other people which are mm -hmm. profoundly undesirable and are undesired mm -hmm. by them mm -hmm. and for the wider society. That. Mm -hmm. We, it's, if we, in many of these issues the, about social issues or bioethical issues, modern man wants a solution which is perfect, mm -hmm. where everybody comes out easy and everybody's happy and everybody has what they want. And there's mm -hmm. a, a there's a, maybe an unwillingness to recognize that that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. That there are always going to be untidinesses. And we are, the world is not built for us all to be happy. So for, and if we look, I, I suppose I'm saying, saying that no matter how you build this kind of law, mm. it will, it, we, we say, we, they're calling it assisted suicide. Essentially what it will, it will end up will be asking doctors to kill patients. Therefore, I think that's one of the reasons why so many doctors are opposed, because it will be the doctors who will have to do this job. Yes. And they will put in the same very tame, very banal protection, conscience protections 
but they won't effectively be conscience protections. And we will go to yeah. a point where eventually we, like there are other countries where you will, if you're a young doctor, you will be asked, will, are you willing to kill patients? Mm. And if they say, and you say, uh, well, I'd rather not kill my patients, you won't get a job because yeah. that would be part of the, in the same way yeah. you're a gynecologist and you're not willing to perform abortions, you won't get the, the job as a gynecologist. Mm. And we'll have a position where inevitably, I mean, how, how does this bill, for example, how does it define the suitable candidate? Yeah. Well, I mean, it defines the suitable candidate as somebody who has been diagnosed with a terminal illness that's likely to end, you know, but it doesn't give a time a timeline for when the, the, the death will actually occur. So once the medical, once it's been medically confirmed by two, two medical professionals, I think that you have a diagnosis of a terminal illness, that you can access that. It doesn't say anything, uh, uh, as I say, about um, how long the terminal illness could be. It could be, terminal illness could go on for three, four, five years, six years, who knows, longer. Yeah, it doesn't give anything like that. But, but I think what you, what you do raise important points around, around the bill in terms of conscience protections because, and uh, the hollowing out of the conscientious protection issues because um, even within, I mean, obviously the bill essentially has identical conscientious protection uh, provisions as the the um, the abortion act in 2018 which says they mother look okay you may not want to do it but you must transfer care to another doctor who does it and even what was extraordinarily in one sense hypocritical mm. and in another sense welcome was in, like uh, Helen McEntee the just minister for justice stood up in the door when she gave her speech uh, in support of the government amendment one of the issues she raised was you know the, the conscientious objections and and that's where she felt the legal challenge could come to the bill in terms of the, the, the conscientious objection, that they weren't strong enough. And she said, oh, and also, you know, she goes, because not only would some doctors have a, a conscientious objection to actively participating, but they would also have a conscientious objection to actively uh, transferring a patient to uh, be killed, essentially, or to be assisted in their time. Wow. And you're thinking, oh, well, Helen, now, now, Helen, yeah, they, now welcome, there's a, a conversion. Now, why didn't you say something like that in 2018? When the, when the abortion debates were going on, why didn't you accept at that point that the provisions, the conscientious protection provisions, which were put into the, the abortion act, were, were also just as weak and as mealy mouthed at that time? But uh, again, look, if you change your mind, whatever, uh, it's, it's inconsistency at best. But um, so I think that there are, you know, there are, there are, huge, there are huge difficulties there. You know, there are huge difficulties. I mean, also, the cat is out of the bag already. I mean, people. Have Supporters of the bill have already said, uh, whether it's meant to or not, this is just to get the, the this is just the first movement. This is the this is getting the door open. Oh yeah, I mean, and, and people should be people should be under no illusions about that. No matter what they're saying, no matter what they say publicly, like, and again, this is all this rhetoric around restraint, the rhetoric of restraint, you know, and uh, it doesn't it just does not it does not tally with reality. It doesn't tally with the experience because, again, I mean, you mentioned say. I mean, one of the issues that arises again about the, the say, in relation to the doctors, you know, and what's going to happen is that there's not enough. We, we talk too much in one sense about rights, and we don't talk half enough about the obligations that rights impose on other people. So I think there's some. So this bill, like you're saying about the doctors, I mean, this bill would create a, essentially create a right for me uh, if I wanted it, but it would also create an obligation on a medical professional to provide the service, and that's something that we need to talk about far more. The ethical understanding of can, can, how far can we morally oblige or can we professionally oblige people, essentially coerce or force people, the medical professionals, to take part in these kind of um, 
in these kind of actions. Like, you know, so we need far more, far more debate around that. Um, but the, um, but also but again, you know, you know the old, you know the old joke. I think it's George Bernard Shaw. To, it's it, it, his joke where a woman, a man is sitting beside a woman in a bar, and he says to her, um, "Will you sleep with me for a million dollars?" And she looks at him and says, "Well, yes." And he says, "Will you sleep with me for ten dollars?" And she says, "No. What do you think I am? A prostitute?" Which he replies, <laughs> yeah, "We've already established that. Now we're just discussing price." <laughs> if you establish the principle that I have the right to be assisted in my in dying, or if I have, I have a right because I have a particular condition, mm -hmm. demand that a doctor kill me. Mm. Surely there's a lack of equality or equity here that only mm. people with terminal illnesses. Yeah. What's the difference ultimately between a debilitating chronic illness and a terminal illness? We're all terminally yeah. ill. I mean, mm. none of us get out yeah. of this alive. So yeah. if I have a terminal illness, which, and what have you, and the treatment says I can live for eight or 10 years, but I, I'm chronically ill and I'm probably going to die in five or six years anyway because of my age. Why am I being denied that right? Mm. I'm living in this chronic debilitating pain. Why? This is deeply unfair that this legislation is only being applied to those people. Mm. I am chronically and massively depressed. I have had all the drugs. Mm. I've had all the treatments. I've had all the therapy. It's not getting better. Mm. Why? Uh, why? Well, to say we need to be we need to be very clear here, Michael. I think in one sense because I mean this is where the the it's going to be so important to actually have, to have very real level very very high levels of clarity around what is actually what is actually the law at the moment and what is being proposed. For example, like everyone in Ireland, every adult in Ireland at the moment under the law has the right to to um, to to uh, refuse treatment life prolonging treatment. No, nobody, nobody, no doctor. Is going to say to you um, if you have um, end stage cancer, if you have any of the cancers, and you're you're in terminal pain, that we're going to make every effort to intervene to keep you alive and keep your pain going. Like that is not what happens. But that that is in a sense the specter that's hanging over this debate. And and there's a kind of there's a level there's at the level of imagination almost like people are pushing back against what they think is is uh, is is happening. But but anybody can go to the HSC website. And it's there. It's been there essentially, I think, since 2011. And they'll find there that a clear statement about the the the, the rights under the law of all adults in Ireland to to uh, to uh, refuse life-prolonging treatment, like I say. So you, you you do not have you. Everyone has that right already. Everyone has the right to refuse treatment, and that's and that's an ethical. That's there's nothing ethically wrong with that. You have the right to refuse uh, life-prolonging treatment where it becomes burdensome are disproportionate uh, to, or, or it's going to be futile for you. You know, that it's not going to, it's, it, you essentially have no hope of recovery in the sense that there's no point um, kind of continuously kind of um, uh, uh, brutalizing people with further interventions that are going to have no good outcomes. That is not a moral position that anybody supports. There's certainly, it's not a position, uh, it's not a Catholic ethical position. Certainly the church does not hold that view that you must endure life prolonging treatments, like even when there's no possibility of a good outcome. That you can refuse treatment, that, that treatments can be withdrawn or withheld. When we look at the experience of uh, the other countries where they start off with uh, pretty restrictive, similarly, the idea of the 
at least the idea of being very restrictive and very careful and very nuanced in their approach to this, pretty quickly you end up in a very, very different place than anybody thought you were going to begin. I, I was looking at the figures now that uh, um, a startling number of uh, cases of euthanasia in the Netherlands and I think also in Belgium are not cases of what we would call voluntary euthanasia, where euthanasia has been expressed, but people who are no longer maybe in a position to give consent. We're now looking at, uh, and part of this development is um, neonatal euthanasia also, isn't it? If we like to, this is the uh, postnatal yeah, version of Well, certainly, um, in terms of, uh, it's difficult It's difficult to be precise in one sense about where it constitutes a tip, like, uh, you know, um, absolutely precisely as, as, as euthanasia, but definitely you could, you could characterize it as assisted dying. Uh, I think those two things do have to be to do assisted assisted dying. They do have to be uh, distinguished. Mm -hmm. But at the neonatal level, yeah, if you're referring to the debate there, where doctors uh, essentially withdraw any intervention from premature babies who are born with severe disabilities, like that, that is certainly going on, and that's certainly a debate that's been going on in neonatal medicine for the last number of years about the extent to which doctors are obliged to intervene to save the life of um, neonatal children, as I say, with, with severe disabilities. So. It's a it's a it's a, it's a very it's a very frightening debate, it's a, and I think it's the one we're going to encounter here a lot more in this part of the world. It's been going on in the U.S. for a good while, and um, it's been kind of characterised as this. Uh, the doctors kind of uh, some of the doctors will characterise it as um, are we are we saving a life or are we um, creating a disability? And um, those who would say, <coughs> excuse me, those who would say that we shouldn't intervene say we're not saving a life; we're actually just creating a disabled. Uh, a disabled, uh, a disabled life, and that's not really something we should be doing, given the level of distress it's going to cause. So it's um, that seems like an incredible in in an age where we hear so much discussion about the disability rights and respect yeah. and, uh, for people with. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's it, it, in a sense like there's a, I, I, <clears throat> it's it's quite um, it's quite eugenic in character. There's a there's a there's a, there's an un, there's an unmistakable kind of um flavour of the of of, uh, of um I suppose what you might you know there's a, yeah it's it's unmistakable there's a kind of a, a eugenic flavour to these things as well you know but how we characterise which lives are worth preserving which which lives are not they're all kind of similar motivations would have would have been behind a lot of the eugenic movement as well so something to be just something to be alert to nothing necessarily happens that that's necessarily the strong motivation in the neonatal area. But certainly, it will be happening in other areas. So, what is the the experience globally around this issue? I mean, we seem to there isn't it isn't one of those issues that seems to fit handily into the category of mm. progressive, conservative, liberal, or not. Different mm. countries seem to come up with very different responses. We've mm. seen the tradition in in, in Belgium and in, and in uh, in the Netherlands, which has been very permissive. Then yes. I don't know if people, maybe to people's surprise, the United Kingdom, which would have a very strong liberal secular mm. tradition, mm. pretty vigorous, strongly, there was a strong rebuffal of this legislation mm. in Parliament mm. after a, a lengthy and fairly uh, mm. impressive debate. So yes. it doesn't fit, it doesn't, it's, it's not one of these obvious things that you can see that we can predict. 
but no we, no, it certainly doesn't. I think that I think that, that 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 kind of speaks a bit about what I was trying to say earlier, rather ineloquently about the um, about the about the uh, the Catholic approach to some of these ethical issues in the sense that they are open, that the um, that the the positions on them can be adopted by people regardless of whether they have faith positions or theological views on these things or not. Mm -hmm. That is simply there's simply a matter of rational inquiry that we can establish the, the dangers of these things with simply through virtue of rational inquiry. Faith gives them a different character, a different motivation in one sense, and it assists our insight into these things. But we don't need to be people of faith to recognize the, the dangers that are inherent in these practices. And I think that that's why there is so much consensus among the palliative care doctors and the hospice care movement around the dangers of assisted suicide and euthanasia. And it's why they have repeatedly and constantly said that we do not want this anywhere near our model of care of the older person or of, or of the dying person. And that has been there right since the beginning. In Ireland, it was resisted right since the beginning in Mother Mary Aikenhead in the 1840s, 50s, right up into the, move, the hospice movement here um, in the UK, as I said, with Sicily Saunders and the development of it across Europe. And they have continuously resisted that, the, the, the intrusion of the euthanasia mindset into palliative care medicine and into hospice care medicine. They simply do not want it. And uh, at a European level, as I said, a European parliament level has been consistently rebuffed. There is no right to die at European level. Um, so I think people just need to be very clear that there is, you know, here is an area where there is widespread professional consensus of the dangers of this practice. And it is only a philosophical position, not a medical position, which keeps it going from strength, you know, going from strength to strength. And the, the philosophical position is, as you mentioned earlier, around this, uh, this sense of um, uh, aversion of, of, of autonomy. But it's not what palliative care doctors want. It's not what pain management specialists want. It is absolutely not what Catholic healthcare professionals want. Um, they want to treat the, they want to treat the pain. Um, so uh, they want to, but they don't want to eliminate, as they say, we don't want to eliminate the suffering by eliminating the sufferer. That's it, not really the approach we take. Yeah, it's interesting you, you, what you say there about it's, it's not a medical problem. I read a paper um, uh, in a medical journal recently on the subject where the authors were concerned that what was actually happening in the debate was an attempt, as they described it, to medicalize what was not a medical issue. Yes. That, and, yeah. and to frame it as, by framing it as a medical issue and medicalizing it, that that gave it a certain neutral scientific stance, if you like, or in the mm -hmm. eyes of legislators or in the public. And they were deep, they were deeply unhappy with this idea because they said this this is not medicine this is not a medical issue. Yeah, and we need to be very clear. One of the very helpful things that people can do if they take away from this is to try and try and look into more, uh, read a bit more about the difference, we'll say, between uh, the understanding within the palliative care community, if you like, between pain and suffering. Like pain is a physiological. Pain is a physiological, emotional, sensory phenomenon. Suffering, as they say, you know, is the person's reaction to pain. Mm -hmm. And so we can manage suffering, you know, since that's why people who are, can be in a great deal of pain, they don't necessarily suffer. And they, we can wonder, why are they happy? Why are these people happy? Why are they able to be relaxed, uh, even though they are maybe in a great deal of pain? Because suffering is, in a sense, a different experience. And the hospice care movement and the palliative care movement speak beautifully to that kind of idea, where they say that um, uh, uh, where, where we can meet people's pain, we can reduce their suffering. Because suffering is what they, you know, you might, Sicily Saunders would say, would have this idea of total pain. That it's, uh, pain is far more than a physiological thing. It's psychological, it's spiritual, it's emotional. 
you know, and we need to, that's where we need to focus our resources on. We need to focus our attention on addressing the suffering that people experience, obviously by meeting their pain and reducing their pain, but we need to meet them where they suffer. And that involves, um, you know, a, a, spiritual, a spiritual assistance, emotional assistance, psychological assistance, social assistance, all of those things. And in terms of, you know, simple basic things like being able to give families leave to look after their, their um, paid leave, for example, to look after those family members who may have terminal illness, because that reduces the sense then that they're being a burden and he, my spouse or my brother or whatever can't work, you know, so they have to look after me and I'm a burden. But if the state supports them, I mean, we do have the CARES Act here, the CARES Leave Act, and that gives people anything from 13 to 104 weeks to look after somebody with an illness. But in terms of, um, so we need, we need far more practical supports like that and that they would be far better in reducing the sense that people have of being a burden, a financial yeah. burden on people. Okay, listen David, it's been fascinating as always. Um, I'm sure we will be back um, to discuss not necessarily such uh, serious issues, although I'm sure everything we'll discuss will be very serious and very clever and all that, but always, <laughs> always, it's always interesting and serious talking to you. I'd like, as I say, I'd like to thank, thank you again. I'd like to thank our viewers here on TRSI. Um, and uh, have wish you a good good weekend. Mind yourselves out there, as I like to remind people on podcast. Don't get drunk and go out into the street and lick people, because that's the way you get COVID. Okay, bye bye. <laughs>